0: Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about. Our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises. Those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with J.F. Martell. J.F. is a writer on art, culture, religion, and philosophy. In this episode, we discuss James Hillman's fascinating book, A Terrible Love of War. J.F.'s essays have appeared in online journals such as Canadian Notes and Queries, Reality Sandwich, The Finch, and Metapsychosis as well as in print anthologies from Penguin Tarture, North Atlantic Books, and Intellect Books. He is the author of Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, published in 2015 by Evolver Editions. His long-form essay, Reality is Analog, Philosophizing with Stranger Things, is available in ebook format from Untimely Books. If you want to connect with J.F., you can check out his website at www.reclaimingart.com. And with Phil Ford, a professor at Indiana University Bloomington, J.F. co-hosts the Weird Studies podcast, a series of conversations on the intersections of philosophy, the arts, and the weird. Weird Studies is personally one of my favorite podcasts super inspirational, and in some ways has energized this podcast, Therapy for Guys. If you want to check that out, go to weirdstudies.com. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, guys. And remember, continue the conversation. J.F., thank you so much for being a part of my podcast. I'm so excited to have you as a guest.
1: I'm I'm so happy to be here. I mean, you and I started exchanging emails years ago, and um, there was a bit of a hiatus there in in our correspondence, but it's
0: great to have this opportunity to talk to you again. Yeah, I'm so happy that we've reconnected. And uh, in fact, I was just talking to a client today. She was admiring my Stranger Things uh, pop Funko dolls. And uh, I was telling her that I was so excited to interview someone today that actually got me into Stranger Things. I don't know if I told you that story. I actually read your book on Stranger Things, which, man, I'm hoping one day you'll come back and we can talk about that because it was so fucking good. And uh, (laughs) I'm one of the weird nerds that actually got into a popular show through philosophy. Right. <laughs> and so it was kind of That's cool great. reflecting on that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, book, book's a big word. It's uh, I think it's about 50 pages, but it, it was released as an ebook, but it's like a long form essay. Yeah. 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 I still, um, I'm still drawing on that one. I'm still circling those themes, you know, uh, it's, that was the beginning of something that, that isn't finished yet, that essay. So.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So JF, would you mind for the sake of the listeners, just telling us a little sure. bit about yourself and then maybe some details about your awesome podcast, Weird Studies. Sure. Um, so my name is J.F. Martel. J.F. is
1: for it's short for Jean-Francois. I'm a French-Canadian uh, writer and um, uh, podcaster. And uh, I've made my living for some time directing documentaries for television. <clears throat> so... Um, yeah, I, I co-host a podcast with Phil Ford, who's a musicologist from the University of Indiana, Bloomington, um, and it's called Weird Studies. And on this podcast, we discuss works of art, works of philosophy, strange ideas, um, just all from a kind of a weird angle. That's, mm. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. And, um
0: it's one of yeah. my favorite podcasts, and and, and listeners, if if you enjoy the stuff that I put out... JF is just a much more interesting and intelligent guy. So I think you're going to like weird studies even better. So I definitely (laughs) encourage you to go check it out. It's amazing.
1: Well, thanks for that. Um, uh, there's uh, the, I guess the only other thing I'd add is that I wrote a book called reclaiming art in the age of artifice that came out about some, some time ago now.
0: It's a great Um, book.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And, um, and yeah, so that's that's what I do. I write and I, I record podcasts and I think about things. Um, yeah, uh, that's about all the introduction I can
0: provide at this moment. No, that's <laughs> awesome. And you know, you're going to be the first guest who's not in the United States. So that's kind of cool.
1: Oh, yeah, right. I'm located in Canada. I'm in Ottawa, Canada. Ottawa is the capital of Canada.
0: So, Dude, I got to make it out there at some point. I think my wife and I would love to come visit y'all maybe yeah, that'd be great. You'd be most welcome. Be awesome. It's a nice
1: part of the world. Yeah,
0: yeah. Escape
1: some of this heat down here in Houston. Well, then wait a few months because it's getting pretty hot up here. Too. Okay. <laughs> hot and humid.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I know one of the things that we kind of connected over in our email correspondence was just the psychology of Carl Jung. I know I was kind of coming at it more from a therapeutic perspective. I, I don't know if it's accurate to say you were looking at it more from a philosophical perspective,
1: Yeah. But in those
0: conversations, we also connected over one of his students, maybe his most popular student, um, James Hillman. Right. And uh, I was so excited that you agreed to discuss one of my favorite books, A Terrible Love of War. Yeah. um, Yeah. Today on this episode. So I'm just really pumped.
1: I am too. And um, I'm not a Hillman expert, but I can bring my own perspective to it just as you will. And that's
0: what I'm I'm interested in in, in hearing about. So I kind of wanted to start just in light of the the theme of my podcast, which is exploring the things that men usually stay silent about, you know, Mm. things related to not only mental health, but religion, spirituality, larger cultural issues, science Do you see A Terrible Love of War as a text that has something to say to modern masculinity?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, Terrible Love of War is not an easy text. It is not. Um, Yeah. it's Hillman published this, I think, I'm trying to, I should have looked this up before, but... um, I know it was in the 2000s, right? It was. It was. 2004, right? 2004, it was right okay. in that time, right? That's when I
0: graduated uh, high school.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, 9-11 had just happened. Uh, Iraq War. You know, it was a time of war. Um, and, uh, but the first thing that he makes sure we know in this book is that every time is a time of war. Mm. Um, first chapter is called War is Normal. And he's trying to dispel the idea that war is a kind of state of exception in history it's not there are more wars he tells us than there are years in recorded history so there it have has been more wars yeah so so um uh in and, and it's an unflinching honest uh almost kind of polemical look at war from uh an a, a depth psychological perspective and um and it's it's just not easy to read. I mean, I think there's there are pages in this book that will make anybody uncomfortable. Yes. But he's 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 setting the table for a real discussion about this this topic and of course um uh the theme of war, the idea of war is um yeah it's, it's, it's' uh concerns men and masculinity uh mm. in a in a profound way obviously it doesn't only concern men but certainly the 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 ideas in this book speak to the masculine and what we make of it now
0: yeah yeah Definitely. absolutely I think in light of that you know one of the first places he goes and I know this has been a philosopher that's been important to both of us. I think you even have several episodes in weird studies where you explore certain of his fragments Heraclitus the the pre-socratic that was probably best known for his idea that the universe is in constant flux you know you can't step into the same river twice but uh mm-hmm. he he also has a fragment which is probably my favorite where he says war is the father of all things yeah and it's interesting that you called this book a polemic because the greek word that he uses is polemos which right. I think obviously means war, but it can also mean like a quarrel or a strife. Yeah, uh, strife but, is the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, 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 like strife. And in fact, one, one translator uh, translated it polemos or war, comma, our genesis, mm. which I thought was a really powerful way to put it. So, what do you think Heraclitus meant by that statement that war is the father of all things or is our genesis?
1: Right, right. Um, If I'm not mistaken, the word Genesis in Greek means becoming. Uh, I would have to look that up to make sure. But um, it certainly means uh, origination, beginning, Mm. uh, something coming into being, right, happening in time. Um, So, war is the father of all things. What does he mean by that? Well, in the, in the in the pre-Socratics, you kind of have the, the basic matrix out of which Western philosophy will evolve. Mm. All the basic positions are there in a weird way. Um, Heraclitus is the uh, the philosopher of flux, the philosopher of becoming. And he's often opposed to uh, Parmenides, who was a philosopher, philosopher of fixity and mm. of, of, of being. And so um, you can trace this duality through the history of Western philosophy, that you'll have your thinkers who believe that the world began in simplicity, in oneness, Um, and then you'll have your philosophers who who believe that the world began in strife and in conflict. Now, you'll have among the pre-Socratics, you'll have guys like Empedocles who believe that the universe was fundamentally love and strife. Those are the words he used, I mean, Those are the English words we use to denote the two basic energies of being, according to him. But with Heraclitus, it seems that what we see, what we experience in this world, is the result of a kind of basic conflict, mm. a clash of forces that's at the bottom of things. And that um, uh, the uh, our sense of a stable, uniform world arises out of this more fundamental conflict. And um, philosophers like Nietzsche will really mm. hone in on that idea in the modern era,
0: right? Mm. Yeah. So w- would so. you say that that war is kind of like an archetypal reality?
1: Yeah, I would say that um, definitely you could call it that. Uh, the, the, if, if you, I mean, it, you have to think beyond the human, right? Because he's talking about reality as it is in itself itself. And so what Heraclitus is saying, I think, at least that's my interpretation, is that um, there's a, a basic strife or a fundamental war going on in nature. You know, the idea that, that the, the the creative force in nature is itself driven by strife. And so mm. things arise out of a, uh, a clash, that clash of forces. And so human history and human behavior reflects this basic reality. Mm. Yeah.
0: Do you have any thoughts on how that, again, goes back to how a man thinks about himself and his own self-development, if this primordial archetypal war or strife is the very fabric of existence?
1: Right. Well, you know, tension and release. Uh, As as an artist I really enjoy, I really enjoyed his work, Um, admire him a lot, Matthew Barney, Uh, I haven't been following his work for some years, but, um, he is a visual artist and also a performance artist who really, really focused on this idea of tension and release and the basic idea of, 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 of strife through tension and release in, in the the human body, in human relations, in the idea of the masculine. Mm. So, um, I think that we can go some ways conceiving the masculine as a kind of, um, uh, um, kind of a yeah. inner polemic, right? Something that's like there's there's a, there's a there's a there's a there are pressures to being masculine, and it has it comes with all these uh, tension points that um, every person who's born into a male body has to kind of learn to navigate, and then that 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 reflects culturally, obviously. Um, but I think it has its roots in biology in some mm. ways, um, or or uh, yeah, kind of, uh, and. Uh, and yeah, I mean, this is not really something that uh, I think that if we if we want to just talk about war, um, I think that obviously the role of men is something that we can't uh, subtract from that—the basic aggression, uh, the 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 instinct, the will to power that that often characterizes masculinity. Um, mm. The yeah, and, and all of these things have their shadow sides and their brighter sides, right? Sure. But I think that I think the war comes out of something very, very deep. Um, right. Not just in in men, obviously, in human beings and in nature, but also in particular ways in men. I think. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the questions that I'm still wrestling with, I'd love to see if you have any thoughts about, is how war. And all the things that, that come with war, how that speaks to how males experience community, yeah. right? Because those are, those are issues that I, that I wrestle with on a daily basis with clients, not just kind of male aggression, but this sense of disconnection, lack of community. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Hillman talked about a little bit in the book is how war becomes this place where men actually feel connected to themselves, yeah. to something larger, to others. I I'm, I'm wondering if that brings up anything for you.
1: It does. I mean the the chapter for that in the book is called um, War is Sublime, right? Yeah. And 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 so he spent at that point he spent it's kind of worth mentioning just, you know, listing off the chapters, there aren't that many. He begins the book with a chapter titled War is Normal. Um and then the second chapter is War is Inhuman. Mm. But then he really plays uh, an interesting game with the word inhuman. Right. Um, really maybe We'll come back to that. And then chapter three is War is Sublime. And in that chapter, <clears throat> after spending two chapters talking about Ares or Mars, the god of war, he then brings in the other uh, super important god, goddess involved in the, the kind of war complex. And that's Venus or yes. Aphrodite and how she shows up in all kinds of ways in war. And uh, one of the ways that she'll appear is with through this fraternal love that <clears throat> arises uh, among small groups of men living under extreme pressure. Um, and, uh, and, I mean, Hillman has some beautiful things to say about that uh, without ever, ever um, uh, suggesting that uh, this doesn't involve in itself a kind of horror, right? Mm. Because the... The, the sense of togetherness, the sense of unity, the sense of belonging comes from a fundamental othering confrontation with some enemy. And you can't you can't have that fraternal love arise without that more basic confrontation. So, wow, that's you know, so well said, man. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I mean, it's and it's but we have to recognize it. Right. Um, uh, men who've been to war um who will talk about that they'll talk about how um i mean i've read a little bit of and i've spoken to relatives who were in the second world war, world war and when they open up and uh, they have all kinds of horror stories to tell but they also have tales of 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 tenderness of a kind that you don't see happening between men in peacetime
0: exactly you know? it's 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 a form yeah. of love don't you think
1: Oh, it absolutely is a form of love. It's it's tender. It's it's strangely maternal love. It's fraternal, obviously, but it's also it's caring. It's physical. It's connected. It's a men touching one another, holding one another. Um, it's uh, you know the Spartans were known in ancient Greece. They were a really militaristic uh, city-state, and the Spart Spartan men would live together and. Um, and there was no shame at that time in that place uh, in um, affirming the presence of Eros, right, the god of of, of sexual love mm. among these men. Like it was part of what made their army so strong, right? And, um, and so recognizing that without uh, downplaying the consequences of it, politically speaking or morally speaking, is something that Hillman has the courage to do. And I, I respect
0: that a lot, you know. I, I love how Hillman kind of brings the opposites together.
1: Yeah, yeah. Without without trying to nullify them or negate them in some beige compromise or synthesis.
0: Absolutely. He allows
1: things to exist in oppositions without trying to, to, to rule them out or to, to kind of subtract them or subsume them in some other idea. I mean, uh, there's no solution in Hillman's book to the problem of war other than we have to first of all recognize what it is. Mm. It's not simply a rational problem or because once a war starts and wars start with tiny little events, a tiny thing, a tiny thing will happen. Somebody will publish an article, someone will call somebody a name, and all of a sudden there's a snowball effect The god Mm. is ready to come in. And then once the god comes in, once the archetype seizes hold of the situation, the entire fabric of existence changes to fit and to, to um adequate itself to that god. Oh, and so, so once good. Aries comes in, there's no thinking outside of war anymore. It's it's bigger than us. It's it takes us, it sweeps us off into its own logic. And then the only solution is to live it out. Mm. Um uh and and so this autonomy of war is something that Hillman really, really communicates lucidly in this book like there's a actually he, he doesn't do it alone he um, he has some great um, thinkers and writers whom he kind of enlists to help him do this I'm trying to find a quote right now by um Barbara
0: Ehrenreich uh, yeah that's one of the know. things I really enjoyed about the book was all the people he drew from to present his case to...
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know he's drawing on multiple sources and not just from psychology. No, no. He's going into poetry and all kinds of things. Um, So, yeah, I'll just read a little passage here. Please. He says, um, since war's autonomy generates its own momentum, war has no cause other than itself. Mm. Quote, is war something which really does have a life of its own, asks Barbara Ehrenreich. War's inhumanity tells war's truth. Its origins lie outside the human sphere, beyond human control. Here we're talking, that's what Heraclitus is getting at. Sure. War is the father of all things. And then he quotes Ehrenreich again. We have been misled, she argues, pinning war onto persons, politics, economics, gender. It is the autonomy of war as an institution that we have to confront and explain, end quote. Her explanation, Hillman continues, is remarkably imaginative. She conceives war on the model of a living organism, quote, a, self-repl- a self-replicating pattern of behavior possessed of a dynamism not unlike that of living things, end quote.
0: Mm.
1: Suddenly, just so it's worth reading the whole thing, suddenly, Hillman goes on, war emerges as a fictive figure, a robotic golem a quote brutal giant stalking his human prey. So if we're if we're gonna talk about war if we're gonna talk about war in relation to the masculine, it's going to have to be on this archetypal level yes. that Hillman insists we we try to
0: attain. Yes. Right. Yeah. In light of that, I'm I'm glad you're taking it back to the archetype because you know Hillman's psychological project was known as archetypal psychology. And I actually wanted to share a quote by Hillman and kind of hear your thoughts on it. It actually doesn't come from A Terrible Love of War. It comes from his book, Revisioning Psychology. Have you had a chance to read that? Yes, I have. Okay. Yeah. It's probably one of my favorites. Um yeah. So here's what he says about the archetype. Because again, we, we have to understand our relationship to this larger force. He says, We find ourselves less able to say what an archetype is literally and more inclined to describe them in images. We can't seem to touch one or point to one and rather speak of what they are like. Mm -hmm. And, And I love this next sentence. Archetypes throw us into an imaginative style of discourse. In fact, it is precisely as metaphors that Jung, who reintroduced the ancient idea of archetype into modern psychology, writes of them insisting upon their indefinability to take an archetypal perspective in psychology leads us therefore to envision the basic nature and structure of the soul in an imaginative way and to approach the basic questions of psychology. First of all, by means of the imagination.
1: Right. Well, that's brilliant. Yeah. I just, I just finished um, a series of lectures on neurolearning, learning. Jeremy Johnson, uh, who's a writer of great um, brilliance in his own right there, um, has this uh, learning platform. And I, I did a series of lectures uh, there called Groundwork for a Philosophy of Magic. Oh, wow. And, and the whole idea was, that was an attempt to think of reality in terms of something that emerges out of the imaginal Right. So I'm using the word imaginal to reference to uh, Henri Corbin, the French um, religious scholar who worked very closely with um, Sufi ideas. Right. And so the imaginal for the Sufis or the mundus imaginalis, the world, the imaginal world is just as real as this one. But it's a world of images. It's a world of phantasms. It's the world of the of of dreams and of um. Of, of madness and mm. of vision and of the, the night world, as uh, Hillman calls it sometimes. And that our world, the idea that our world might arise out of that realm acausally is a metaphysical concept that I'm working on. But um, the idea is that if you're going to understand anything in this world, um, you're going to have at one point or another, you're going to have to start thinking imaginally Mm-hmm. using the imagination as a tool of perception to understand all the ways in which per- particular things participate in a fundamental uh, imaginal structure that's more poetic than it is rational right yeah and that, that that's that's how you approach reality from a, a really dynamic point of view is by letting reason Um, subordinate itself to this kind of more primordial, imaginal way of thinking, and that's what Hillman demonstrates in all of his books. He's taking a concept like war, and he's thinking about it imaginatively. And so... And sometimes he'll be making leaps that would be very strange in a philosophy textbook, right? That he wouldn't make Absolutely. those leaps, but, but he's following the images, and then at the end you have a stronger and deeper sense of what it is that he was discussing than you would have had if if that idea, if the idea of war had been reduced to some clearly rational schema, where we lose the energy of war, the feeling of war, uh, the sublimity of war, and all the other dimensions
0: that he explores in this book, right? Dude, I fucking love that. <laughs> you know, it reminds <laughs> me, I, my clients always ask me why I have uh, the symbol of the Hamsa hand all over my office. And I know that it has a particular meaning in certain traditions, but I kind of put my own spin on it. I, I sort of, yes, it's a hand, but at some level, it sort of is shaped like a heart. And then it has this mm-hmm. eye right in the center. And I kind of see that as this concept of the eye of the heart, which. For me, is connected to that organ of perception, known, known as imagination, right? Like, yeah. And and when I'm when I'm talking to my clients, I'm like, look, we're going to try to figure out different cognitive thought patterns, and we're going to process emotions. But the reason we're going to explore dreams and and focus on, on these images is because we have to transform the imagination. That's right. That's where it's at.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the, the one of the tendencies in depth psychology that Hillman was fighting against was a tendency amongst among Jungians um, to uh, reify, reify to to um, turn the archetypes into easy facile pastel images right. that are just applicable like cookie cutters uh, um, to, to, to to situations and that's not what the archetypes were for Jung. Um, and that's not what the archetypes are for Hillman. The archetypes are much stranger. Archetypes is a name we give to forces, entities, aspects of reality that we simply can't understand rationally and yet that assert themselves all the time in our lives. Absolutely. And, you know, reason itself is an archetype, you know. Apollo is an archetype. Yes. the, 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 the. the rationality itself is just but one of many archetypes. And that's why also Hillman is constantly insisting that we
0: practice a polytheistic. uh, I was hoping you would go there. I was about to ask you about that. That's one of my favorite ideas for him. Can you say more about that? Kind of his polytheistic psyche, maybe his polytheistic understanding of the cosmos?
1: Well, yeah, he's a thinker who, you know, I, I, I liken Hillman to one of my favorite Modern philosophers, Gilles Deleuze, who's a French philosopher that I've um, read very closely for a very very long time, and uh, the reason I, I I liken the two of them is that they, they share a very profoundly share an affinity, or a um uh, they both put the emphasis on multiplicity as okay. opposed to to simplicity. So they think that reality at its in its fundamental Core reality is a multiplicity of things, never just one thing. Um, so things don't reduce to one object or one force or one substrate. Things are innately uh, many all the way down. Mm. So the only the only proper way to approach a situation in life, uh, whether you're doing science or whether you're doing philosophy, or whether you're just trying to you know build a I don't know. Do some carpentry or sure. whatever it is. The, the way to do it is to approach it in this in this spirit of multiplicity, that every situation involves many factors, none of which is the most important one, but all of which create – conspire together to create a unique situation. And so um, so he he – you know, he faults different religious traditions or different philosophies with overemphasizing one force and trying to make it supreme.
0: Whereas like a monotheistic approach to things.
1: Exactly, a monotheistic approach to things, which you just you don't find only in religion, according to Hillman. You'll find it in science. You'll find Absolutely. it in politics, right? Um, and he's encouraging us to think in terms of multiplicities, and the reason why it's hard to do that is because it's really scary we love to have one thing to fall back on we love to have one north star to guide our way if we have to follow a bunch of different stars then which way do we go and and, and it, it really depends it depends on the situation yes. so you have to make decisions for yourself in the moment with what you've been given uh, and which is always strange because um, the, the 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 situation you're you're handed is never going to be simple it's always going to be complex and involve mm-hmm. a, a multiplicity of forces all of which have to be taken into account so when he's doing dream interpretation Hillman always insists on following the images right yes. don't try to interpret reduce the images to some message right because the that's not how the unconscious thinks it doesn't think in terms of discrete messages or like like it's not like Morse coding us you know a specific thing it's giving us images that are multivalent and layered and strange and it's by following them and trusting them them and letting them guide us to the next set of images that we actually make some progress.
0: Yes. Yeah. But we can never get comfortable. No, absolutely. Yeah. Do you see any like practical ramifications to that? Like even in the modern world, as we think about modern masculinity, how adopting a pluralistic or polytheistic sort of approach to reality could help us think through some of these things?
1: Let's stick with masculinity because I know that's a, that's your, your theme that you're yeah. exploring on this podcast look um, if you're going to have a monolithic or monotheistic vision of, of masculinity you're doomed because um, what do you do when all the feminine aspects of you all the yin in you decides that it needs to be heard that it needs to be recognized you repress it you deny that side of yourself this is the side that Jung called the anima in men right um Masculine bodies have um, feminine uh, minds, you know, or right. feminine unconscious minds. Yeah. And so, and, and for Jung, it's always a matter of letting the shadow, even the side that can't express itself through your body or through your job or whatever has to come out somehow. Mm. And that involves recognizing yourself as a multiplicity, a pair, a dyad, a, 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 zizig, a syzygy, as they call it, yes. instead of just being a one like one unitary discrete being, so already you see that um, the the kind of um, deadlock of the masculine versus the feminine, which so many men uh, endorse and and uh, just assume is true, that there's some kind of like that a, a real man should be an absolute masculine creature. Yes. Uh, that it cre- creates all kinds of problems. But if you soften that up and realize that your masculinity is contains within itself a femininity that needs to be expressed, needs to come out, well, then you're already thinking in terms of multiplicity and you're, I think you're going to do, you're going to have a a, a better life in the long run if you're able to face those parts of yourself.
0: Yes, Jeff, man, drop the mic. (laughs) Just from anecdotal clinical experience and then thinking about my own sort of journey into hopefully a, a more mature masculinity, I've known how much suffering comes out of that kind of inflexible or monotheistic attempt to be a man. Right, right. You know, so, sometimes on the podcast, I've referred to toxic masculinity as an inflexible or rigid yeah. masculinity. Maybe maybe it's a monotheistic masculinity where it can't oh. have space or room for the multiplicity that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. It's definitely in a it's definitely a, a fearful masculinity. Oh, I, I mean, shit. toxic masculinity. If you want to talk about that, fearful. I mean, it, it, it it's it's fearful. It's fearful of what lies within. It looks out and doesn't want to look in, because it's afraid of what it sees when it looks in. Because what it sees is inevitably a betrayal of what what uh, it thinks it is. Dude, right? that's like, fucking powerful. I can't yeah. agree more. Yeah. So you you have to look inside and. Um, and a lot of men have a lot of trouble. When we say that men have problems expressing their emotions, well, that's a that's a cliche. There's there's plenty of emotions men have no problem expressing. Anger is an emotion,
0: <laughs> exactly. no problem.
1: Um, uh, you know, get, getting into intellectual debates and winning—that's uh, not—that's uh, an emotional activity sure. that a lot of men have no problem engaging in. Um, getting competitive in sports. I, I'm being cliche here, just because we're in the realm of cliche. Sure. Um, but um, uh. But the, what what men fear often is um, is uh, exposing themselves to their own vulnerability, their own inadequacy, their own incompleteness, um, and I think that there's probably some evolutionary reasons for that. Mm. Um, that that then culture and politics might exploit, for instance, um, the idea of having to care for. Uh, 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 a woman who's given birth to a child and having to protect and having to be self-sufficient and all that stuff. I mean, we could talk about that. I'm not sure I'm not I'm not very well read in evolutionary psychology or, or so I can't really speak to it, but I, you know, regardless, be that as it may. the The fact is that when we say that men have problems expressing their emotions, really what we mean is that men have problems, have a problem knowing their emotions, feeling their emotions. It's not about expressing them. It's about even knowing that they're there, knowing that this thing I'm feeling is actually an emotion. And wow, if I look within and I let the emotion arise, it comes with an image. It comes with all kinds of images. Maybe something happened when I was a kid. Maybe something that someone once said to me. Uh, Maybe it's a memory or maybe it's a dream image. Maybe it's an image of a tiger. Whatever it is, the image comes, and Hillman's method is that will lead you into the labyrinth where you will find uh, a way to to become whole. I know he doesn't like that term. He sure, doesn't like the sure. idea of wholeness. But essentially, that's how Jung would put it, that yeah. you compensate and you'll, you'll become a,
0: a whole person. Absolutely. So, no, yeah, and man, yeah. that's getting me to think with so many of the men that I work with, again, in my own journey, We're afraid, to go back to fear, to look inside because we see the opposite. We see the feminine. We see the vulnerability. No wonder so many of us feel fucking alienated and disconnected and inauthentic because we're only expressing one part of us that is real and true and important, but it's not the whole thing. It's not. It's monotheistic instead of polytheistic.
1: Exactly, it's it's monotheistic. It expresses it expects everything to be just the one the one thing that it seems to be and nothing else, which is not the way reality works. Everything is many things, and every man is is also a woman, and uh, and 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 that's the way that reality is built. But uh, then that's a cultural problem. It's the culture doesn't allow us to do this. The culture insists on on um, people slotting into easy categories. Um, and we see this with the whole gender situation right now where people there's there's a multiplicity in us that wants to come out. Uh, there's a multiplicity of ways to live and um, as liberal liberated, let's say or emancipated as our techno capitalist society um, an- announces itself to be sure. Nevertheless, it codifies a whole bunch of stereotypes that remain harmful if they're not looked at and seen for what they are, Mm. I think.
0: Yeah, Yeah, well said. Okay, so let me ask you this. Uh, Moving into the chapter on the sublime, which you alluded to, I know in previous conversations all throughout your podcast, Weird Studies, you bring up Rudolf Otto's notion of the holy or the numinous. I'm curious if you could riff on that and maybe connect it to what Hillman's talking about when he refers to war as sublime.
1: And that's that, that that's the reference. You you nailed it there. I mean, Rudolf Otto uh, was a Protestant theologian who wrote a book, I think in the early 1907 or something like that. Yeah, um, I think that's right. Called, called The Idea of the Holy. And, um, one of the things he was trying to do, oh, this is great that you brought this up because it'll take us to the heart of it, I think, or at least one of the hearts, <laughs> one of the one of the hamsas. Hey, it's polytheistic,
0: um, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. There's lots of ways in and lots of ways, uh, not many ways out, but lots of ways into the labyrinth. Anyways, <laughs> The point is that um, Otto argues in this book that the sacred has a fundamentally dyadic form. Like it has it has two ways of manifesting mm. simultaneously and he calls it Mysterium Tremendum et fascinans, which means the terrible and fascinating mystery. Mm. So the sacred always appears as something deeply ambiguous and ambivalent. It has these two faces. On the one hand, you're drawn to it. On the other hand, you're afraid of it. Um, horror, Good horror films really nail the sacred better than any genre, right? Because in horror, it's like you can't look away. You're drawn in. But at the same time, you're afraid of what you'll see. Um, so if the sacred pretends to not have – if if sorry, if a particular – way of looking at the sacred, ne- neglects that shadow side of the sacred, which is just as essential as the luminous side of it, then you end up, that part goes unconscious. And that manifests in our environment in all kinds of ways. As mm. Jung says, you know, if, you know, your shadow will manifest in your environment. If you don't come to terms with your shadow, it'll manifest as fate. It'll come out as fate. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so Rudolf Otto, and he wasn't talking psychology; he was doing theology. But the point is that um, he really develops an idea of the sacred that I think is describable as an idea, a, a sublime idea of the sacred. Mm. You know, the sublime, which is a late 18th century attempt to capture, to conceptualize this idea of the holy and of the the, the larger than life, what is what is mysterious and strange and yet real, um, is really. Um, uh, a, re- a useful concept to use when thinking about war because it has those two sides. And so Hillman is trying to get us to realize and to accept that as terrible as war is, it's also sublime, it's also in strange, in, it's strangely compelling, fascinating, and um, involves all sorts of events that we might describe as heroic, beautiful, sad, meaningful. You know, all those things are part of the complex. And when people go to war, when a country decides to go to war, it's as, it's, as, it's for those reasons. Those are the things that they want to, um, and that's what you were saying earlier, like men feel disconnected today. Well, going to war gives immediate meaning to your mm. life. Uh, as, as barbaric as what you're going to have to do in that situation may be, it nevertheless does this. But without recognizing that side of it, we're just getting half the equation, and then we're, sure. we're not getting we're not going to be able to manage it to um to get or maybe eliminate it i don't think war can be eliminated but at least um we can um we can certainly improve on the situation
0: sure sure i don't know if i'm going where you wanted to go there no 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 that's great i I guess one of the things that i'm wondering i want to hear your thoughts on this i know Many of us, when we talk about the sacred, we we usually think about things like God or, or we kind of rush to religion or spirituality. Do you, do you think there's a place to refer to just the human psyche as sacred, to the individual as sacred? And w- w- where I'm going with that at some level is it's kind of my hermeneutic or my my approach with a client, a new client. I'm sitting down and I'm Trying not to reduce them to any diagnosis. I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to s- say they're all this or all that. I'm, I'm trying to think of them as wholly other or or a singularity, mm-hmm. which contains yeah. both the 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 terrible and awful dimensions, but also the parts that are fascinating and that draw me yeah. in that are beautiful. Do, yeah. do you think it's appropriate to refer to the human as sacred? Oh, yeah.
1: I think that was Jung's entire project was about that. It's like the sacred isn't a category that disappears when you decide you're not going to go to church anymore. In fact, some, in some, a lot of places, the church, church is the last place you'll find the sacred.
0: I didn't discover you the know? sacred until I left church. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> you know, So so the sacred is out there. It's it's on the loose in the world. It occurs. It you'll encounter it in the weirdest places. You might encounter it in a traumatic experience, mm. uh, and that's not to belittle it to call it no. sacred because you're in, you're encountering radical mystery with the sacred. I, I love Whenever, what Jeffrey Kripal
0: yeah. says that that trauma often leads to transcendence. It does. And I'm because sorry to interrupt tra- you, but
1: no, no, not at all. No, no we're having a conversation. I mean the way I I describe it as a rift, right? Trauma Mm. is a rift in in, in your story, in your narrative. And all of a sudden, when the rift opens, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing past the facades. You're seeing something very strange underneath the apparent calm and quiet and orderly um, surface of things. Hey, this is the upside down in Stranger Things, right? It is exactly. It is exactly the upside down. And and you got to deal, you have to deal with it. And I, I, I see the sacred in terms of those moments of revelation where we're seeing what's going on underneath and what's going on underneath is, like I was saying earlier, is imaginal, dreamlike, bizarre, somewhat uh, disconcerting, unclear, ambiguous, ambivalent, all those words. Point is that where do you find that in life? Well, you might find it in your in the events of your life. You might find it in art. I think the art has become a source of the yeah. sacred in this post-religious age for many, many people. Um, you look at a film like Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, Oh yeah, which is a wonderful film about war, about the sublimity of war, and about all that esprit de corps, as we call it in French, the, the spirit, um, the fraternal love that develops mm. in a, a war situation. Um, and it's also about masculinity and femininity. The film ends with a powerful statement about the feminine and the masculine. Um, and so… Um, and and also that film actually should be paired with an earlier Kubrick film called Paths of Glory, which has a very similar ending. Anyway, I won't get get into it because that'll get <laughs> us in the weeds. But the point is that these are films about war that make us feel that, that also confront us with the sacred. So the sacred is out there; everybody encounters it sooner or later. Uh, so we certainly all encounter it in our last moments on this on this in this on this earth. In those moments, we all have to face it, and. Um, I think the sooner you the sooner you face your own sacred, um, the better. I
0: think that sure, that's sure. kind of what Hillman is calling us to do. Yeah, yeah. So one of the concepts that drew me to you and your work in the beginning was what I think you call with a capital R the real. Right. And and, and as I as I read through a terrible love of wars, I think about Hillman. I, I almost see him as a psychologist of the real. And so I'm just curious if you could speak to that. And, yeah. and and one of the things I'm thinking, too, is just thinking about, you know, many of my, you know, kind of secular, post-secular clients. They might think that the real has to do with, you know, what they can access with their five senses. And I yeah. honor that and respect that, but I kind of see that as reductionistic. I agree. Um, yeah, I use
1: the word the real as a kind of um, antonym of reality, so you have mm. reality and the real; they're not the same thing. Um, I don't know if those are the best terms, but they're the terms I've I've landed with. Sure. Uh, the real for me is is the imaginal. Mm. The real is the like in this in this uh, series of lecture, this course we just did. The argument there with the, is that the, the possible is the real. What is possible is the real. So. Um, uh, what you when you imagine uh, situations, let's say you're trying to imagine then what tomorrow will be like or what this big event that's coming up will be like, you're actually you're not just making up images in your head. You're accessing real possibilities mm. that are floating outside of reality, waiting to come into the and come into being. And that's why it's that's why science relies so deeply on the imagination. That's why art is so tied to the imagination is because the imagination is more than just a a, a fanciful, um, you know, um, epiphenomenon of the human of human cognition. It's actually a mode of perception. It's a way of seeing what's what's what may be coming around the corner. So having said that, that to me is the real. The real is not just what is physical, what is around us, what we can touch and smell and see with our eyes, it's also all of that virtual um, potential that envelops each thing. So the real includes meaning, right? So Mm. reality, bare reality is is basically physical reality with meaning taken out. But you'll never experience that. You will only ever experience reality as imbued with meaning and significance and, and relevance, mm. those things are super central. So the real is a way of capturing a sense of of um, of the world that includes that dimension of things. Okay. So And, and you're right. I was surprised, like rereading the book for, for this conversation, I was surprised uh, by how many um, times that Hillman uses the word, the real, mm. and he uses it in this sense, right? I hadn't noticed that before. He says, we have to imagine the real. He, um, he has a problem At one point he criticizes Susan Sontag for saying that war is unimaginable. Right. Right. We can't imagine. He's like, "No, no, we must imagine. We must imagine what war, what the reality of war is, what the truth of war is. We, if we say we can't imagine, basically war will have its way with us. Yes. The only way to get through it, to get to find solutions to the problem of war is to use our imaginations. Yes. And, um. Yeah. So that's. Yeah.
0: I I wonder if you could speak to this just using your distinction between reality and the real. Do you have any thoughts on how? And I know this is an overgeneralization, but for the sake of this conversation, how the modern man is in some ways living more in "quote unquote" reality than this concept of the real. Well,
1: again, um, you know, what does our contemporary idea of masculinity, masculinity emphasizes It emphasizes reason it emphasizes the practical side of life yes means and ends thinking goal oriented thinking um social status status Absolutely. is very important for men um and that's something that i think you can make an argument is deeply biological status is, mm. is something that's probably you'll find all of, you find it certainly find it in the animal kingdom yeah thinking about the apes uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and, um, yeah, so we've got reason, we've got... Um, what about strength?
0: Uh, so, so some strength, power. Power, yeah.
1: Power, power, a physical strength or political strength or um, just uh, authority. So all these things hinge upon our uh, are, are, are measurable aspects of
0: reality. Um, and, and you're not necessarily saying that those are inherently bad. No, they're not.
1: But if they're divorced from... Uh, a connection with um, their opposites, Mm. you know, their yin sides, um, then it becomes a real problem. If if also the relativity of reality, Mm. right, is something you lose if you only emphasize these things. If you think that your persona, as Jung called it, your job, is you, you're screwed. Yeah, you're fucked. Because (laughs) sooner or later... Sooner or later, you'll you'll fail at your job or something will go wrong or times will change and your job will become obsolete or whatever it is. And then you will lose your you will literally lose your soul if you've invested all your soul making in your social status. Mm. How do you how do you avoid that? You cultivate interiority. You have a being that wow. you are. You build a soul that's not just reducible to your social situation so that when your social situation falls apart or changes, you have, you're have you rooted in yourself. You have an interior life. How do you build an interior life? You look within. What are men afraid of doing? Looking, Looking within. within. <laughs> so they're, they're like... We're like brittle, you know, we break too easily mm. and, um, and we can't find these um, deep wells of meaning within ourselves because we're afraid to look in. Uh, maybe this is,
0: no, this is really so simplistic, good, but no, no, yeah. no, this is so good. And, you know, honestly, that, 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 was my goal in this conversation is to take this really difficult and complicated book and, and try to not reduce it to principles, but to try to bring it into the practical world the practical at some level, exactly. level right? In yeah. some ways, the, the world that I live in and, and that so many of the listeners live in. So w- one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and it connects to this, I, I, I didn't think it would, was at one point when he's talking about the potential benefits of what war can kind of teach us, he talks about the importance of like slowing down or or prudence. And thinking about it in the negative, he says, you know, we've fallen at least in 2004, it's probably true today in the United States into this spirit of like rashness or being haste.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And haste is the new cardinal. Like, uh um, yeah, yeah.
0: Aldous Huxley yeah. said it's the new yeah. uh deadly sin. It's the eighth deadly, deadly, deadly sin, sin. Right. right? Yes. I thought that was yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. I wanted to see how that might apply to our conversation and and what you just said about the importance of cultivating interiority. How yeah. How does right. rashness or haste work against that?
1: Right. That's a great question. So the, his, his the passage I'm thinking of on prudence comes in the the last chapter, which is yes. called Relig, "Religion is War," where Religion he war. basically tears Christianity a new one. Yeah, does. In that in that chapter because of Christianity, Christian Christian Christendoms. Let's say it's neglect of. The other side of itself, the mm. dark half of itself. Right. It's not so much that he has a problem with Christianity per se, but he has a problem with Christianity, Christian civilization's failure to deal with the shadow side of itself. Mm. The side that John of Padmos makes perfectly plain for us in the book of Revelation. Right. Um and uh, which if you read the, for example, I mean, there are ta- so many passages and moments in Luke and John where there's a hinting at that other side. But institutionally, uh, the tendency has been to avoid it, to demonize it, to pretend that it's somehow external to us, that it's not part of us. It's not part of our it's not in our village. It's not in our church. And then you have all the problems that stem from that. Oh, Yeah. But what he, but in the midst of this scathing critique of Christianity, he, has, he recognizes certain things that the Christian um, uh, ethos brought into the world. And one of the things is prudence, this mm-hmm. value of prudence of taking your time with things, of, of deliberating over things uh, for as long as it takes before letting them come to fruition in the world, letting them happen. And so this is something we've lost in our, in our post-Christianity. It's the mm. post-Christian world that's hasty. And um, in our rejection of, of the institution of Christianity as, as, as it was before, like a centralized, right. like, monolithic uh, institution, we've also um, – uh, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And so he's – th- the way I read it was that we need slowness. You know, mm-hmm. we need to bring back this idea of taking our time with things because if reason is your only tool, reason moves at 100 miles an hour. Reason jumps from one thing to another. It'll jump through a bunch of syllogisms, and you'll next thing you know, you'll be um, totally elsewhere if you just allow rationality to take over. Look at the. Uh, project trinity right the project yeah. that gave us the atomic bomb the atomic bomb yeah you know there you read the um testimonies of the scientists who were part of that and how they were almost in a kind of dream state while it was happening for years in a dream state mm. semi like there's no other way to describe it and then realizing suddenly as they're watching the detonation in new mexico suddenly realizing what they had done you know oppenheimer wasn't cl- Fully in, you can be perfectly rational, practical, efficient, successful without being conscious. And so prudence, first and foremost, is cultivating that interiority Dude, so that you that. can see you can see where you're coming from and where you're going and then when you're when you're given an order let's say you're part of a hierarchical system you're given an order you at least that order echoes in an interior space where you can actually assess it morally or else you're just like um, Eichmann right who yes. was just following orders and worked in Auschwitz you, you, we need to 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 cultivate this sense and that's something that Christianity brought really really worked on I mm. think something that we if we give that up, we're in trouble because it the idea that we each have a moral compass, that we're, we're each unique persons, and that we're each responsible in some way, not just for our own actions, but for the fate of the world, that's something that Christianity, um, that we, I think we give up at our peril.
0: No, that's right. really good. You know, I think about my, my own therapeutic journey. Um, my, my therapist was the, the director of the Jung Center in Houston, and he actually turned me on to Hillman. He actually met him and interacted with him. Um, one thing he would always say is that he was one arrogant motherfucker. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he thought very highly of himself. Uh, yeah. Which, which makes sense if you read his books, but, uh, you know, I, I know Hillman in the union tradition was also into the whole concept or the metaphor of, of alchemy. And, and my therapist mm-hmm. would also would always talk about the importance of sort of letting the soul cook. Right. To, yeah. to, to, you know, like it's, it's all about a process and and this slow working out of, of various different you know energies and it can't happen overnight. It's going to take yeah. time. And so as, as you're saying that, as I'm thinking about my own experience, you know, that's one of the things that I would tell the guys that are listening to this podcast. You know, I, I have this conversation with my clients all the time. They come in sometimes and they give me a list of 20 things they want fixed. And I'm like, hold on a second. That shit is not going to work. We've got to <laughs> slow down and, yeah. and, and and let this cook let it let yeah. it do its thing.
1: yeah trusting
0: and trusting. That's another thing
1: it's another problem that you know if we want to talk about the bad form of masculinity it's a lack of trust a, mm. a spirit of suspicion oh my and God. this isn't just about like bro culture this is in science in philosophy. Ooh, I mean Descartes, say more about that. The founder of modern philosophy is Descartes, right? Right. Desca- Descartes and his inaugural gesture—this is the gesture that laid the groundwork for all modern philosophy—was basically uh, a gesture of absolute suspicion. Mm. Descartes decided, "What can I, what can I really know exists?" And the only thing he found he couldn't doubt was his own doubting. Right. And so he he allowed himself to become a solipsist. <laughs> Solipsis means someone who believes that they exist in the world as a figment of their imagination. He, he didn't stay there, but he allowed himself to go there. And modern philosophy followed that kind of gesture constantly. So this idea to hold everything suspect, to trust nothing until you've seen it, not to, to believe nothing, not to be taken in, not to be suckered into, into uh, believing lies or whatever, that uh, hyper skeptic skeptical attitude is a form of masculinity, I think, um, that, uh, that. Uh, you'll see manifested in all kinds of ways. And where am I trying to go with this? Um, the, the, the 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 key is trust. We don't trust the world. We don't trust one another. Mm. And we don't trust reality to do the work for us. You know, Taoism, which is a Chinese philosophy right. that's very deeply... Um, uh, very connected to that, that, that way of doing things and letting things cook. It's all about like, make the first steps and then watch it happen. God, I And love I, 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 I think about like times in my life where things have really gone well, projects mm. that have really, I remember the moment in those projects where I realized that I didn't need to be pushing anymore. It was happening. It might've been a write, writing project. It might've been the, the podcast was like that. At some point we put a lot of effort at the beginning and all of a sudden it's like, we can it's it's got a life of its own we can mm. just we can just watch it go now and but we had to trust you know the process reality is not as it's not as um, uh, antagonistic it's not as as mean as nasty as mm. as opposed to us as we think
0: yeah
1: reality really can work with us I know, love if that. we work with it like gardening you know you don't you don't take your hoe out and butcher the garden like day after day to try to make it you 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 plant the seeds you do what, what needs to be done then you let nature take care of it take care of the rest and that's kind of the way that you can live a life is mm. you you need to trust that the situation you're in is the right one and
0: do what you can but then also allow things to cook as you say I really like that Yeah, I really love what you're saying about trust because I hadn't thought about it that way but as I think about parts of my identity, my masculinity, so many of the men that I work with, we are, we're, we're, we're highly suspicious. We, we have this suspicious, hermeneutic yeah. of suspicion about everything. We're, we're questioning all the time. We're on edge. We're on guard, you know, metaphorically looking behind our shoulder, trying to figure everything out. And wow, could we benefit from a posture of trust, from a hermeneutics of charity?
1: Human, exactly. That's the word. Human unix of charity, which you know, um, this is something that Phil speaks very uh, intelligently about. Um, and uh, in the in academia, the ethos of suspicion, hermeneutics of suspicion, are basically that's the mo, right? So yeah. everybody suspects. Everybody who's trying to get, you know, the one argument that no one else has gotten yet. Yeah, there's like a competitive edge thing going on, but to You know, like I remember when I first read Plato, uh, I was young, and I was just like, "What is this? This is bullshit."
0: (laughs) Yeah, what the fuck is he talking about? Yeah,
1: he's he's not like it doesn't make sense. Like, why didn't he think of this or that or the other thing? Why is he going straight to that conclusion? That doesn't make. But it's it's like, yeah, exactly. He, but you know, JF, I I wanted to tell my 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 16 year old self, you're, you're an idiot. You're literally an idiot. You're you're discovering Plato for the first time. If you if you're not gonna trust that there's a reason why you're holding a penguin edition mm. of a book written by written <laughs> two thousand five hundred years ago, you know it's like you have to trust that there's more going on here than you think mm. and open your mind to it. I would recommend that. I, I mean, this is one thing we really try to do on weird studies. It's always to approach things in that spirit of charity. Not yes. always easy because I have the same tendency Sure, To sure. be very critical and judgmental, but really to like. Recently, we did a musical. Phil wanted to do this musical that he really likes called The Bandwagon, and I don't like musicals, right? So, um, but I I just made the decision. I'm just going to watch it, and mm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have something good to say no matter what. And I found all this great stuff that I, I wouldn't it. have noticed otherwise. You know, it's just it's a simple thing, really. Sure.
0: Yeah. I think too, not to be too simplistic, but I think a posture of charity or or an openness to trust can then result in greater meaning and, and even gratitude. Which which That's, I think, you know, I mean the science just and all the research points to this being just a really good thing for our mental health and our sense of well being. Yeah. Not to okay, reduce I mean, it to that, but... Oh, I don't think it's a reduction at all. I
1: think that's... If I were to say the one thing that we need to learn how to do again as a culture is fall on our knees, mm. you know, that's... We can't do that anymore. I remember I once did a documentary on uh It was on a music... On a, it was a music documentary in Quebec and with a songwriter, and we went to St. Joseph's Oratory in Montreal, which is a beautiful church up on the mountain, and... Um, and there, there, there's like like hundreds of stone step stairs getting up to the wow. church itself. And there's a central part of the stairs that are reserved for people who want to go on their knees. Mm. And so they have a sign. And you have pilgrims. A lot of them are from India. Uh, strangely, St. Joseph's Oratory is a big pilgrimage pilgrimage site for uh, Hindus, mm. weirdly. Um, but uh, you'll have people from the Philippines. And they go up this really tall hill like on their knees and so as a joke i was like i was film, i was directing the documentary so i told the songwriter you want to go up on your knees and of course he wouldn't do it to him it was it would have been the it would have been the most shameful thing he could do mm. and i can understand it's not his tradition is not but the point is that the reason i think of that is that we we've lost we don't realize everything we've got here in this world, the fact that effects follow causes reliably enough for us to have physics Right. is something it's like the universe didn't have to give us this. The universe could have been a topsy-turvy nightmare, um, and yet it's not. It's at least amenable enough to intellect and to trust and, and to, to, to our lives to allow for something like science to exist. Mm. And that, if nothing else, is worth our gratitude. Like, just to feel grateful for living in a universe that's not Alice in Wonderland. Absolutely. Is, is, yeah. But then, you know, all, your, all the other blessings, you know, despite all the challenges we all face and sure. the problems that we all have to deal with, the fundamental blessings, it seems like we've, uh, we see gratitude, maybe in, this is another form of toxic masculinity, we see gratitude as a sign of weakness,
0: you know? I, I agree. That's a good
1: point. Yeah, so I think trust and gratitude go together. I yeah. think you're really kind of lasering in on the the key ideas here. So, mm-hmm.
0: I don't. so let me yeah. ask you this, Jeff. I want to be sensitive to your time. Is there yeah. any other concept or idea in the book that you wanted to make sure we discussed or, or brought up? I don't, there, there's so many. We could have a five hour conversation. Sure.
1: Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book. Um is the little you know, he has those little text text boxes, you know, with little mini essays yes. in the book scattered through it. There's one about the decision in Japan to get rid of guns. Mm. I don't know if you remember that one. I so do. basically yeah. So at some point in the feudal era, the Japanese adopted gunpowder and gun gun making. And they were making some of the most Uh, advanced, sophisticated, and beautiful guns in the world at that time. This is, we're talking about black powder. We're talking, I I don't remember, probably 16th, 17th, uh, sorry, 17th century, something like that. And then they realized that guns were wrecking their samurai culture, Mm. which was all about the sword. And so what they did is they just eliminated guns. They actually eliminated guns just there were no guns in japan so that they keep, they could preserve their samurai culture wow. so that they could so that they could keep killing each other in the way that they thought people should be killed <laughs> they're still killing <laughs> yeah it's not yeah exactly but that's the type of nuanced and, and and almost kind of ironic uh approach that hillman is is recommending here mm. look there's a problem right now with guns in the us i know yeah. There's no easy solution to this problem because the whole place is littered with automatic rifles already so even right. if you were to ban them what do you, you know. So but the, but the 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 very fact that this culture was able to make that type of change um is I think unbelievable almost miraculous that the Japanese could have because we think now it's like oh if a technology can exist it will mm. and there's nothing we can do about it. You know, it's too bad about human cloning, but, you know, if we don't do it, then the Chinese will do it or somebody else will do it, so we have to do it. That's exactly the logic that led the Americans to create the atom bomb, Mm. because they were afraid the Germans would do it, so they did it first, right? So that's sort of um, the idea that we have a lot more control over what our culture and our civilization does than we think. It's not just an automatic process. This is a little running against the grain of Hillman a little bit, but if we become aware of the archetypes, we suddenly become able to steer the ship. And I think that um, my point is that the argument for getting rid of guns in Japan was not an ethical argument against war or against the deadliness of guns. It was an argument from a place of aesthetics and an argument from a place of imagination, and ethics as they relate to honor and a, a, a culture that they wanted to preserve. The point being that if we think about things aesthetically and mm. ethically instead of moralistically and politically, we can find better solutions to our problems, I think. Um, and uh, I just found that little anecdote. I to love be that. Great connection, man. Pointing at the possible in a productive way, like Something needs to happen to change our culture. There's no doubt about that. When it comes to war, obviously, violence, um, we need to make changes, but we need to get out of the moralistic deadlock where it's like one side needs to win. Mm. We need to think differently. I don't know how we do that, but you know, gratitude, trust, a return of the sacred, all these things kind of, I think, are more or less essential if we're going to move forward. With uh, the very real problem that is war and violence and masculinity in our times, right?
0: Yeah, I love it. You know, I'm I'm thinking maybe one way to frame toxic masculinity is that it's a very unimaginative, yeah. way to think about being a man.
1: It's that, a day world, a day world consciousness, as uh, Hillman says yes. in his another great book that we didn't mention, but uh, a book he wrote called "The Dream in the Underworld." The
0: Dream I'm in sure the Underworld. Yeah, it's a you, wonderful yeah. book.
1: Yeah. So in that book, he opposes day world and night world thinking. The day world is a world of reason, clarity, limpidity, logic, uh, science, you know. But the, the night world is the world of dreams and intuitions and emotion and all that other stuff, the images. And um, we need to get in touch with that. You know? mm. If we're not in touch with it consciously then we're in touch we're 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 immersed in it unconsciously Mm. and then the world starts to look like a bad dream which it has i think a fucking nightmare
0: yeah
1: exactly
0: so 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 jf if if there's anyone that's listening that's really enjoyed your perspective if they want to find out how to read your books or listen to your podcast how do they find you online how do they connect with you um
1: I have a website that I try to keep up to date, but I fail consistently. It's called it's ReclaimingArt.com. Um, I also, of course, uh, co-host that uh, podcast, Weird Studies, with Phil Ford. That's probably the easiest way to find us. We have a Discord. There's a Weird Studies Discord. There's a Reddit. So those are all easy ways to find me. If uh, um, And, um,
0: yeah, I think that's
1: about it. That's okay. How you, yeah.
0: Yeah. Man, thanks again for for coming on and having this discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's it's been a pleasure talking to you, Kike. Okay. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Let's try to connect. Reach out to me. You can go to my website at quiqueautre or you can Google my name, Kike Autry on Google and there you'll find my Facebook and Instagram accounts. If you would like to schedule an appointment, you can go to my website or you can go to the website of the practice that I serve at Katie Teen and familycounseling.com I can't wait to hear from you please share my content and remember continue the conversation.